Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. I don't know what the world is. I have to come and learn everything all over again. There was no internet when I came to jail. There was no smartphones when I came to jail. There was no debit cards when I came to jail. That's Renford Ferrier, who's been in prison for about 30 years now. He's been speaking with Globe investigative reporter Tom Cardoso. Today, you'll hear a phone interview between Tom and Renford speaking from prison. But first, I want to have Tom explain a bit more about who Renford is and why we're hearing from him. Tom, thanks for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I just want to start by asking you, who is Renford Ferrier? Renford is a current prisoner with the Correctional Service of Canada who went to prison in the early 1990s for a murder. Renford was a young black man who shot and killed someone else. Uh, He received a second-degree murder life sentence, right, with a parole and eligibility of 10 years. The judge, he says, gave him that sentence because she believed that he could be a productive member of society in his 30s. He went to prison in his early 20s, and she said that she hoped that in his 30s he would be able to get out and live a happy, productive life. So, I mean, it sounds like you've gotten gotten to know him a little bit. You guys are are in touch here. Mm Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you about this investigation that The Globe has done. What were you looking into? So in 2020, I published the first story in a series about systemic racism within the federal prison system. Uh, That story was about risk assessments. They're these tools that parole officers use to determine which kind of prison you're going to go to. Is it a minimum, medium, or maximum security prison? what kinds of jobs you'll have access to within the prison. Mm. And what we found in that original investigation was that Indigenous and Black men were at a significant disadvantage compared to white men, even after you accounted for their age, the severity of their offense, you know, Mm. the type of sentence that they were on. It didn't matter. You know, being Black or Indigenous made things more difficult. And of course, Mm. these risk assessments also affect your odds of successfully getting paroled because they're a really important factor in parole determinations. How significant a difference are we talking here between um, people who are black, indigenous and white and their chances of of getting parole? If you control for age, sentence length, the severity of a person's offense, the year that they were first eligible for uh, release into the community uh, and the risk assessment scores that estimate their likelihood of reintegrating to society, if you account for all of those things, Indigenous, Black, and other racialized men are 26, 24, and 20% less likely than their white peers to be paroled in the first year that they're eligible. So in other words, you control for all of these factors, and the impact of race is going to mean that you have between a 20 and 26% lesser chance of getting released than a white person does. That's a really significant difference then. It's an enormous difference. Yeah. Yeah. And... The first point of eligibility is interesting because most people will go up for parole as soon as they're eligible. And some people will have a much more developed correctional plan and will be much closer to the goals that their parole officers have set than others. And so when they go before the parole board, some people will be very ready and some people will very much not be ready. So is it also, I guess, about how the system prepares these these people before that first parole hearing for that hearing? Like it's the, the buildup and, and whatever supports or, or things that they get up until that point, too? 
Yeah, that's actually what experts have told us is that the numbers that we're seeing, this significant disadvantage that racialized men face is really because of the Correctional Service of Canada, which is not responsible for making parole decisions. Parole decisions are made by the Parole Board of Canada. The Correctional Service of Canada is the organization that has to prepare prisoners for release. Parole officers work for the Correctional Service of Canada, not for the Parole Board. So really, the issue experts have told us is really on the preparation side and on everything that happens before that parole hearing. By the time someone shows up to the parole board, their uh, case is kind of already set in stone to a certain extent. You know, the parole board's hands are to a certain extent tied based on all of the things that have been prepared, the files, the documents, the recommendations that CSC has made. So you've been talking to to Renford here, Tom. What? How does his story represent the? I guess the bigger picture of, of what you found here. I think Renford is emblematic of a lot of the issues that have come up during my reporting. His experience within prison was such that he was involved in what we call the institutional subculture. He was involved in you know selling illicit goods within the prison, and he had fully admits this himself. And to him, he says, it was a survival mechanism. It was a way for him to, you know, pay for new shoes, to get enough money that he could make phone calls, because you do have to pay for those, to be able to afford everything from, you know, chocolate to instant noodles to the things that we take for granted, but to a prisoner can be really, really valuable. So Renford's experience in prison and, you know, his, the, mechanisms of survival that he found were also the exact things that hurt his odds of getting released. Yeah. So for with his case in, in particular, why didn't he get parole in 10 years like a lot of other people may, may have? So the first time he came up for parole, he was in a maximum security prison. Because of his institutional involvement, uh, there had been a couple of incidents where he was involved in physical altercations. He argues that it was, uh, he was responding to, you know, aggression from others, but he did have uh, these issues that were building in his file. And that meant that the parole board said, you're not ready for release. You have to show progress. You should be completing all of these treatment programs. And he was not really on the path to be doing those things, again, in part because of the system that CSC has. The parole officers were not necessarily offering him the support that he needed. The next time around, or you know, a couple of parole hearings later, he is now being told that he's been in prison for so long. This is in 2017, his last hearing. Uh, the parole board said that he'd been institutionalized for so long that it wouldn't be easy to release him. Hmm. And you can imagine the you can see the the irony in that statement, right? Uh, they're saying you absolutely need to get paroled, but you can't get paroled because you've been in prison for so long, so we're going to keep you in prison for longer. What's his status now? Where, where, where is he now? So a few years ago, Renford decided that things had to change. So he eventually negotiated to get a transfer to a different prison. He was in Quebec, and he arranged to be transferred to Nova Scotia to a prison called Spring Hill Institution. And this was his this was his gambit. This was his bet. If I move to Nova Scotia where I know no one, I cannot be involved in the subculture. I don't have any associates inside or outside of the prison. 
None of the guards know me. None of the parole officers know me. So I'll have a fresh start. And at that point, things seem to really start changing for him. He uh, said he finally, for the first time, has a black parole officer, something that's never happened to him before. But now being in Nova Scotia, he's finally talking about going on an ETA, which is a escorted temporary absence, a day pass, basically, where you get to leave the prison for a little bit, escorted by a guard. He's talked about, you know, finally preparing another parole submission, uh, which is his parole hearings coming up in December, asking for release to a halfway house, again, in Nova Scotia, a place where he knows no one. It seems like he finally has found a way to get out, but the big test is still ahead. The test comes in December when he goes before the board. Okay, so my name is Renford Farrier. I'm currently serving a life sentence with possible eligibility, 10 years. So my life sentence started in 1992, and at present day, we're in 2022, and I have not seen freedom since. So I've been here collectively 30 years. Can you tell me a little bit about how you feel after all of these years still being inside? Wow. Like, what if I tell you this is a question I pretty much ask myself every day now? How do I feel still be here this long? And I have a motto that I've adapted over the past few years where every day I wake up, I tell myself I have to be stronger than yesterday. I want to tell you that like I'm worn out and I'm tired and I'm all of these things after all this time. But in the same breath, I can't afford to be that because the time still continues. Right? So while I might feel that, I can't live that because I must remain strong and energized and vibrant because I don't know when this time will end. When I had pled guilty to my prison sentence, it was on the instructions of my attorney to my family because we were new to the prison system and the justice system, you know what I mean? And I wasn't aware of what actually a life sentence meant. And the instructions to the lawyer was basically, hey, a life just means he'll be on parole for the rest of his life. He'll do 10 years and he'll be paroled. So I honestly believe that's what that meant. So when I pled guilty, it was a mission of guilt because, yes, I committed the crime. Was it a mission of guilt so the family wouldn't have to sit through a trial and all the things that came with that? So my family didn't have to sit through a trial and all the things that came with that. But come to find out years later... Like, a lawyer should never tell him to plead guilty to a life sentence because it's a life sentence. The date of eligible for parole isn't honored or respected in any way. The only thing that matters is that life sentence. And once you plead guilty, you lose all recourse of any other possibilities you have of anything, like no appeals, no reducing of sentence. And my family and I, we didn't know any of that. We figured, yeah. I was, what, 20 at the time, 21? We figured, you can do 10 years. We're here for you. And 10 years, you'll still come out, like the judge said, a relatively young man. I think I can remember the first day I ever came into the penitentiary at the start of my sentence. And when I got into the cell blocks, I remember the place being so loud. 
like everything echoed. So then I went into my cell and looking in the cell, I was like, wow, this is prison. This is really prison. The lights went out at 11 o'clock and it was silence. I mean, you could hear the pipes and I found that to be so eerie because here was a place that was like a train station just moments ago and now here we are and the only thing you can hear are the pipes. No voices, no TVs, no nothing. Just the darkness. And I think for the first moment in that time, I was sad. And I mean sad like despair kind of, you know? Because now this was for real. This is what what I'll be experiencing for the next 10 years. Okay, uh, we're going to cut, so I got to call you back because, you know, we're on a time limit with the phone. Every 30 minutes, it notifies us that it's going to cut off. So it's going to yeah, cut off. Yeah, okay. I'll call, call you back. right back. Okay. Hey. Yeah, you really got to learn how to work your phone. No. <laughs> Someone hearing about your case, I think, uh, and the fact that you've been inside for 30 years, the thing that they're probably going to ask is, why are you still inside? I try to understand that myself, and it makes no sense. The easy thing would say, um, because it said that I'm involved in the institution of subculture. So what that means is I'm not following all the rules, right? And that could be from being engaged in illegal activity to receiving institutional reports. And what are institutional reports? Institutional reports would be like, let's say I swear to the officer, I could be charged with disrespecting an officer. Let's say an officer tells me you need to go to your cell and I don't go right away, you know? I can be charged with um, refusing a direct order. A white officer wrote a report on me once and I didn't find out about this report until I was getting ready for a parole hearing, and this happens a lot. An inmate and I one time were at a, we were having a discussion about, it was actually about music, and we were trying to discuss which artist was the better artist. And if you've been around people of color, especially Caribbean people, we're passionate when we speak, and you know, we use our hands and we raise voices and stuff like that, and we try to make our point be known, and like I said, we're loud. The white officer, in the control tower made a report. It's called an observation report. So an observation report is what this officer observes and what's his opinion of the situation. His opinion was we were in an heated argument that could see us come to fight. Never asked mm-hmm. anything what was happening. He just made a report that, hey, these two guys were in a heated discussion and their hands were flailing and they were very upset at each other. This is a report that's used against you because now they're saying you're in an aggressive altercation and they had ever never come and seen you to ask you about that. And that happens majority of the time with guys of color. But your white counterparts, they get questioned. That's, hey, what's going on? What are you guys doing? What's happening there? Maybe you could tell me a little bit about what led you to move to Nova Scotia and leaving the subculture behind, leaving all this kind of stuff behind. I started to talk with two individuals that worked in the Max at the time, and they had known me for a while. The first thing they said to me is, like, we don't have to prove you're guilty. You have to prove you're innocent, <laughs> you know? 
And the thing that they said that resonated me with the most was, these people here don't care about how many years you've been here. Your sentence is life and they'll let you die here. She says, you can't have any slips because you're not seen as other inmates. You are seen as somebody who is defiant, who is a leader, who has influence. So while somebody else might get, don't do that, you will get, lock him up. So you have no room for error. And for the first time in my sentence, somebody really got through to me, you know, and made me start to see things differently. So then I came to the conclusion that I could no longer stay in the region that I was or And with the help of this person, we found a place where my reputation wouldn't precede me and I would be somewhat anonymous. And I wouldn't have to live up to the image that has been created over the course of 20-some-odd years. I told somebody once, this has probably been one of the most difficult years of my entire prison sentence. But Why is that? I realized that I've lost pretty much all of my youth here. My 20s, my 30s, my 40s. I lost it all here, and it's because I, I believed what I was being told. Like when, when somebody tells you you're bad and keeps telling you this, you start to believe it. I had somehow fallen into the trap of believing I really was that person. But when I started to really look at it and look into it, I was, I was nothing like that. Somebody helped to open my eyes and turn the lights on. For the first time in 30 years, I completed my GED and I did that just this November, you know. I... I did that in less than a year of being here. I've gotten other vocational things like a forklift license and I've applied myself to prepare myself for a gradual and eventual lease. When I say gradual, because I've applied for ETAs. And even that's a challenge, right? Because while I've applied and then been approved by the community and the place that I'm intending to go since April, I still sit here now, what, February with no decision from my case management team, from the parole board. It's just frustrating because you're being told to be patient and how do you tell from somebody who's in jail 30 years to be patient, right? Try to just look at this through my eyes for a second. Here I am, I'm going through these hoops now. So when you first tell me after the correctional plan, we're going to put this in front of the warden's desk and it should be signed off and you can begin your ETAs. Then you come back and tell me, oh, we were wrong. We need to do the, the risk assessment. And after the risk assessment, it'll be put on the warden's desk and signed off. And then you tell me, oh, sorry, wrong. After we do the psychological assessment, it'll be put on the warden's desk and then you can begin your ETA. So four different times I've been told after this, it goes in front of the warden. It wasn't until December 3rd, while having a conversation with a parole manager from another institution, that he made it clear to me that, no, your case has to go in front of the parole board first before it goes into the warden. So this is why I say racism is real and it's not a joke. While I'm sitting here going through all of these struggles, I'm in an institution where a white offender serving a life sentence 
has only completed, I believe, maybe nine years or something of this nature, on I think on a life 12 or something, has been approved for ETA and is going on ETAs. So I look at this now, how is this white guy now just being eligible on his way to ETAs while I am here, 20 years past the 10 sentence, jumping through every hoop, not getting an ETA? So mm-hmm. you see why sometimes we look at it and wonder, is this because I'm black? Because if his case management team know the process, we're in the same prison, why wouldn't my case management team know the same process? Let's talk a little bit about, you know, what your plans are, because you have, you do have this parole hearing coming up in December. When you ask, what are my plans after? Well, the plans are start the road to release. Yes, I plan to get out and get a job and follow the rules and live a life of a law-abiding citizen. While all that could be true, the truth of most of that is, I don't know. I don't know what the world is. I have to come and learn everything all over again. There was no internet when I came to jail. There was no smartphones when I came to jail. There was no debit cards when I came to jail. And one of my main objectives is to start to advocate for prison reform. And not only prison reform, but to begin before guys get to prison. You understand? And... Because lived experience is better than somebody telling you that doesn't know what you're going through. So in order to find out how to go about achieving all of that and making that my life's work, I need to be in society to do all of that and find out how to go about doing all of that. There has to be better than what there presently is when it comes to corrections and parole And can I tell you, I've never seen anybody in a parole hearing that looked like me. And the people that are deciding whether I'm released, they're pretty much white people that they see people like me. And it's hard not to be judgmental when you're bombarded with a certain type of stereotype of individuals. You know what I mean? And it's terrifying to know that, man, I could go there in December and they say no because they don't know who I really am right now. And they can never know that because they haven't lived any of what I went through. I just want to know what it's like to not sleep in a cell anymore. What's the what's the one thing that you're looking forward to the most when you get out? I want to walk my grandkids to school because I have three grandsons. And I'd like to walk them to school and pick them up from school because I never got to do with my own kids. I envision that and dream of it just to be able to take them to school and be like, yeah, get to school, you guys. What are you doing? <laughs> and like, yeah, Papa, I see you, and then going to pick them back up again. That's the thing that I crave the most. I've never gotten to do this with my own kids. I see it on TV, and I imagine what it would feel like. In an emailed statement, Correctional Services Canada spokesperson Pierre DeVoe said that, quote, a number of considerations go into release decision making, with public safety being the paramount consideration. He also added that the agency has instituted anti-racism training policies. 
thanks to Tom Cardoso for sharing that interview with us. You can read his full investigation and more about Renford Farrier's case at tgam.ca. And if you liked this episode, please share it with a friend or on social media and let us know too. You can leave us a review at Apple Podcasts or email us at thedecibel at globeandmail.com. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. 